Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I swear on my life that what I'm about to tell you is true. It was a night etched in my memory, haunting my dreams like a specter, refusing to be forgotten. The air inside the RV was thick with laughter and the buzz of excitement. We were a group of friends embarking on an epic road trip the hum of the engine beneath us, and the promise of adventure ahead. Little did we know, our journey would take a sinister turn. It was on a desolate stretch of road, far from any signs of civilization, that we saw him, 
a hitchhiker standing on the side of the highway, a solitary figure in the moonlight. Against our better judgment, we pulled over, the screech of tires announcing our reluctant decision to welcome him aboard. As the night progressed, our mysterious passenger unfolded his dark history like a tattered map of horrors. He grew more erratic, his eyes reflecting the shadows of a past best left forgotten. Suddenly, without warning, he lunged at the driver, a frenzied attempt to take control of the wheel and send us careening into chaos. In a chaos that ensued, the driver struggled valiantly, but the air turned heavy with the scent of impending disaster. With a sudden lurch, the RV crashed, sending us sprawling into the night. Stunned and disoriented, we stumbled outside, only to find our wood, be killer, disappearing into the shroud of the surrounding woods. Fear gnawed at us as we fumbled for our phones, desperate to summon help from the authorities. Amidst the darkness, one of us saw something in the woods, a creature unlike anything we'd ever imagined, a dogman. Its eyes glowed like twin orbs of malevolence in the moonlight towering on hind legs, covered in fur that seemed to absorb the shadows around it. The creature had the body of a man and the head of a monstrous wolf. It exuded a primal aura, and as it howled, the sound reverberated through the night, chilling us to the bone. Then, just as swiftly as it had appeared, the dogman vanished into the depths of the woods, leaving us trembling in its wake. By the time the police arrived, we were a jumbled mess of frantic words and terror. We recounted our harrowing experience. The crash, the attacker, and the monstrous creature that had haunted the periphery. The police, however, regarded us with skepticism. They exchanged glances as if we were a collective hallucination, dismissing our tale as the product of a wild imagination or perhaps too many hours on the road. But I swear, as sure as the moonlight that illuminated that desolate stretch of road, our encounter with the hitchhiker, the crash, and the otherworldly dogmen were not the fevered dreams of an exhausted mind. Some things, it seems, are just too dark for others to believe. My girlfriend and I had driven down an old dirt road that ran beside a lake on one side with mountains on the other. We were looking for unexplored territory to hike in. The dirt road became a trail and eventually was swallowed up entirely by the forest. Once the path became impassable by car, we got out and hiked for quite some time and began making our way back to the car as the sun was going down. It was a challenge getting the car turned around, but I finally managed and we were off. It was slow going as it was a shitty road and getting dark fast. Suddenly we came to a fork in the path that hadn't been visible coming the other way. Neither of us had any idea whether to go right or left, so I just picked randomly, hoping that both would end up taking us back to the main road. As we rounded a small curve in the road, our headlights fall upon a man dragging a large hockey duffel bag off the trail into the woods. As soon as the lights hit him, he just froze completely still. Driving past him felt like an eternity because we couldn't have been doing more than five miles an hour due to the shitty road. My girlfriend and I didn't say a word to each other until we were well past him. 
at which point we were like, WTF was that? And then the road ended, just like where we had stopped the first time the forest had swallowed up this part of the road. We were going to have to turn around and drive by the man with the human-sized duffel bag again. I told my girlfriend to buckle up and hold on tight because at the first sign of trouble I was going to gun it. We came to the spot where the man was and he was nowhere to be seen. We eventually made it to the right path and got the F out of there. The weirdest thing about it was that there wasn't a vehicle anywhere near this guy for 50 miles in either direction. We would seen it if there had been. We'd traveled as far as possible both ways and there just wasn't a place to pull off of the road. How the hell did he get there? Where was he going? What was in the bag? On Tuesday afternoon of this week, a few minutes after six o'clock, I noticed from my window a very peculiar, solitary, vapory object in the heavens. Its position was about where the constellation of the Dipper would be at that hour, viz. due north and thirty, five degrees above the horizon. In magnitude and contour, it in a marked degree resembled a human form head, body, and nether limbs, the body and limbs robed in shadowy drapery, the head, which was of brighter luminosity on the crown and forehead, had thick flowing hair, and the whole figure was extended horizontally, with the head eastward and the front downward, but there was another feature quite as marked, and that was an appearance as of wings projecting upward and backward from the shoulders, and these in due proportional extent to the body and limbs. This last-named feature gave the entirety the appearance of an angel. Flying in mid-heaven, considered as a cloud, it was remarkable that it kept the same outline continuously, which is uncommon in those vapory objects, while I had it in view for a considerable time, as it progressed swiftly toward the east. The luminosity of the shadowy angel was of a golden white, and it presented a very beautiful appearance against the blue background of the sky. In addition to the startling outline of the object, the interest in it was greatly increased by its being at the time the only one visible in the whole northern heavens, except some low-lying black clouds on the horizon. I called the attention of several persons to it, one of whom discovered himself the resemblance I did. Query, was this a presage of a coming event? It reminded me of the words recorded in Mark 13, 27. Then shall he send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. And those in Daniel 9, 21, Gabriel being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. I was walking through the woods after fishing for the better part of the day. I decided to stay out real late and try and fish up some bullheads from a local watering hole. I was only about 13 and stayed out way later than I normally would. Usually I would take a trail home, but decided to cut through some thicker brush to get to my grandparents' house so I could call my mom. I knew she'd probably be freaking out a bit, even though this happened from time to time. There was an abandoned graveyard on my route. I don't remember what the story was about it, but I knew it was there. I had wandered past it before. Never really checked it out. It's all overgrown and wild. 
I knew that if I followed on the outskirts of the graveyard, I'd hit the road and be home free. The day had been pretty chilly overall for a late spring day, but I swear, in my teenage brain, that it was getting colder. I remember looking at my breath and thinking it was weird how cold it had gotten. It was overall a pretty bright night, near full moon, but in the woods it was hard to see. The graveyard was wide open, no trees. It was well lit. As I was walking up, I noticed that the ground was covered in a thin layer of fog, and remember looking into the graveyard and not really registering what I saw at first. It was a person which at first didn't seem odd, so I kept quiet and walked into the woods a bit more. So I didn't get spotted. I didn't know who it was, so I wanted to keep clear. I stepped behind some trees and lost sight of them for a moment, and when I came back around the tree, they were gone. Weird, because I was behind the tree for maybe a few seconds tops. I didn't hear anything either. I walked a bit further, keeping an eye out. I was a bit creeped out. Near the graveyard was a run-down. Barn, I'm not really sure, but as I got closer to it, I could see that someone was inside. I got a good look, and it was a woman, probably in her fifties. The way the moonlight hit her made her look incredibly pale. She seemed to be digging, but... I didn't hear anything. No sounds of a shovel or her making noise in any way. I was maybe 30 feet away. I could see she stopped and disappeared behind some debris. I decided to get the heck out to there and quickly moved to get out to the road. I tried to keep track of her looking for where she went, but I couldn't find her. It was like she'd literally disappeared. I kept trucking and came out to the road. The fog was pretty much covering the road. A small country road, fields on one side, woods on the other. As I walked down the road, she would randomly appear behind and in front of me, and I started hiding and basically playing cat and mouse. Each time I saw her, she was hard to see, only in the moonlight and stuck to the remnants of some of the old houses nearby. She always looked pale, never made any noise. Once I got past that part of the road, we did a number of barn foundations and home remnants. I never saw her again, and it instantly started getting warmer. Creeped me the heck out, and I never went that way again. I don't know who or what that was, but I told my uncle about it, and he went and checked it out, thinking maybe someone was maybe trying to excavate the graves. He said there wasn't anything messed with. They thought I was lying. Still gives me the shakes just typing this out. I know it was most likely someone wandering around looking for stuff or checking the place out. But what teenage me remembers didn't seem natural. It was also weird that she never made noise. She also seemed to be able to just appear and move around me. At one point she was right behind me and I swear a moment later she was in front of me. One day last week, a marvelous apparition was seen near Coney Island, at the height of at least a thousand feet in the air. A strange object was in the act of flying toward the New Jersey coast. It was apparently a man with bat's wings and improved frog's legs. The face of the man could be distinctly seen, and it wore a cruel and determined expression. The movements made by the object closely resembled those of a frog in the act of swimming with his hind legs and flying with his front legs. 
Of course, no respectable frog has ever been known to conduct himself in precisely that way. But were a frog to wear bat's wings and to attempt to swim and fly at the same time, he would correctly imitate the conduct of the Coney Island monster. When we add that this monster waved his wings in answer to the whistle of a locomotive and was of a deep black color, the alarming nature of the apparition can be imagined. The object was seen by many reputable persons, and they all agreed that it was a man engaged in flying toward New Jersey. About a month ago, an object of precisely the same nature was seen in the air over St. Louis by a number of citizens who happened to be sober and are believed to be trustworthy. A little later, it was seen by various Kentucky persons as it flew across the state. In no instance has it been known to alight, and no one has seen it at a lower elevation than a thousand feet above the surface of the earth. It is without a doubt the most extraordinary and wonderful object that has ever been seen, and there should be no time lost in ascertaining its precise nature, habits, and probable mission. That this aerial apparition is a man fitted with practicable wings, there is no reason to doubt. Someone has solved the problem of aerial navigation by inventing wings with which a man can sustain himself in the air and direct his flight to any desired point. Who is this adventurous flyer, and what is his object, are questions of immediate and enormous importance. Of course, the first impulse of the unreflecting mind will be to exclaim that the mysterious flyer is an aeronaut who has invented practicable wings, and is secretly experimenting with them before making his invention public. This is directly at variance with the known habits and customs of aeronauts, had any aeronaut invented a pair of wings, he would have advertised, long before his invention was perfected, that he was in possession of a machine wherewith to make an aerial voyage to Europe in 24 hours, and that he was prepared to exhibit it for a few weeks to everyone who would pay 50 cents to see it a little later. He would have taken up a subscription to pay the expenses of his proposed voyage in the interest of science, and would probably have published a book on the science of aeronautics. Then he would have suddenly disappeared, taking his wings with him, or accidentally burning them, and after the first outburst of indignation on the part of a swindled public would have been totally forgotten. This has been the invariable practice of these ingenious aeronauts who have claimed to be the inventors of balloons or other apparatus capable of navigating the air. That the mysterious flying man has not followed this custom makes it perfectly clear that he is not a professional aeronaut. Beyond any question, either the flying man or some scientific person at present unknown has invented the bat's wings and frog's legs with which the flying man now sails through the air. Why has not the inventor patented his invention and had himself duly written up by the press? The reason is obvious. The flying man is engaged in some undertaking which he cannot safely proclaim. In other words, he is an aerial criminal, a fact which explains the cruelty and determination visible on his countenance, and what can be the nefarious object which this probable wretch has in view. It cannot be simply theft and robbery, for it would manifestly be impossible for him, in his flying costume, to perpetrate burglary or highway robbery, or to pick pockets. It cannot be plumbing 
for obvious reasons. Neither can it be the sale of books published by subscription only. Yet the flying villain must have an object, and we have a right to assume that only a peculiarly nefarious object could induce a man to fly to New Jersey or St. Louis in hot weather and without an umbrella or mosquito net. It has not escaped notice that of late Mr. Talmadge has been wandering in the West in search of entertaining varieties of crime wherewith to embellish his sermons. It is also known that he returned to this city just before the flying man of Coney Island was seen. Now, if there is a man in this country whose arms and legs are fitted to endure the muscular strain inseparable from the act of flying, that man is Mr. Talmadge. He has preached for years with those graceful limbs and must have developed and hardened their muscles to an extent which would fill every other professional acrobat with envy. What is more probable than that Mr. Talmage has equipped himself with wings in order to study interesting types of immorality from the lofty height of a thousand feet? He has flown over St. Louis and Kentucky, precisely the places which might be expected to yield a rich reward to an investigator of crime, and he is now flying to and fro over Coney Island, preparatory to preaching a scathing sermon on the wickedness and indecencies of our bathing resorts. Here we have a natural and probable explanation of the flying man, and it is earnestly to be hoped that no one, with mistaken zeal for field sports, will attempt to shoot the preacher on the wing with a shotgun. There is not a shotgun in existence which will do any good at a distance of a thousand feet. When I had 16 years old, I was in my friend's house watching a movie, and after I come back to my house, walking on the street normally, was 1.30 a.m. when I arrived at my house. I gone to my room and go front the mirror. I didn't turn on the light in this moment. I used my phone's flashlight. So in this exactly moment, I saw a pale man behind me with straight black hair looking at me for three, five seconds, and I could felt my skin creeps like never before in my whole life. I was so scarred with this, I couldn't sleep well in this night. I had overthinking in this thing for a few years, but couldn't found something about it. I don't. What is it? On September 18th, an unsettling incident unfolded involving my dad's friend and a terrifying creature known as the Dogman. This creature had brutally killed his 130-pound dog. The dog had a poignant backstory as it was a gift from his wife's late uncle. Before his passing, the uncle had entrusted her with a dog and she had promised to care for it. One night, the dog's instincts kicked in, sensing a looming danger. It began barking incessantly, indicating a perceived threat. Despite their efforts, the dog managed to escape from their home. Tragically, the following morning revealed a grim sight. The lifeless body of the dog lay on their porch, its entrails savagely torn apart. In response, Justin, the dad's friend, moved the dog's remains to another location, intending to return later to bury it. However, upon his return, he was met with confusion and disbelief. The dog's body had disappeared without a trace. Seeking answers, he reviewed the footage from his trail camera and was met with a chilling revelation. 
The camera had captured images of the dogman itself. Unfortunately, I don't possess the actual pictures of the dogman. The incident left Justin's wife profoundly distraught, grappling with the loss of their beloved pet in the unsettling encounter with the enigmatic dogman. I've lived in Florida almost my entire life, and right now I live in central Florida, so this is terrifying. When I was about eight, we rented a place that was on one of the main streets of our town. Without being too specific, this was in Pinellas County. My brother and I would walk our dog down the main road, and occasionally we would see a dead animal. We would just assume that it was roadkill from the night before. It was always opossums and raccoons. So this was the most logical conclusion. This went on for weeks, maybe months. As time went on, there were more and more dead animals, and we noticed they were always in one yard. As time went on, we noticed the animals got more and more exotic. For example, one time, there was a dead snapping turtle. This would not have been roadkill in the area because there wasn't water around this specific area, and we had never seen this type of turtle nearby. So whoever lived there had been slowly collecting more dead animals as time went on. It was freaky shit, especially for an eight and six year old. We eventually told our parents and some other family, and my grandma brushed it off by saying that in her old neighborhood, people would nail dead animals to trees. So this wasn't a big deal. Still weird and oddly out in the open on this large road. It is still creepy to think that this was going on so close to home. And now, after your story, the feeling is back. One time on a scout camp when I was around 14, we were finishing up an activity late at night and hiking back to our site. The leader of our group, no adults mind you, had the map and instructed us to make a turn into a secluded part of the forest where we walked for a good 20 minutes without reaching any sort of destination. Just as we were about to turn back, someone pointed out that there was a tree stump that looked like a massive dog laying down about 100 meters away. Jokingly, one of my friends at the time started howling like a wolf as a sort of mock communication with the perceived dog. And by God Almighty, did it scare the living shit out of me when I thought I saw its eyes open and glint back at me. Then sit up, then stand and start slowly walking towards us. At this point, we froze, all losing our shit in all senses of the phrase, and tried to ignore it in the hopes that it would be fooled into thinking that we were trees or something. Isn't that what it's meant to make dogs think? Still, it came closer to us, creeping slowly, calculated as if it could jump at any moment. We stood there as a group of five or so not so brave now. Boy Scouts panicking and trying to figure out what the hell we should do, whispering as quietly as possible about whether to make a bolt for it as the canine figure was around 40 meters away from us now. I was beginning to make out more detail, a very long jaw that hung half open, big paws that stepped with visible agility and power, a rather large figure around the size of a Siberian husky. 
Someone suggested running back while we still had the distance, and in our unease, we chose this option quickly and bolted as fast and as hard as we could. With quite literally every fiber of my being, I was propelling myself forward as fast as I could, regretting not exercising more and wondering how we would fare should we be unable to outpace the beast. No sooner had we sprinted for around two minutes that we had turned a large bend and checked behind us to see if there was anything that could potentially spell our impending doom, which there wasn't, thankfully. I was rather confused at this stage. Why didn't it chase after us? Perhaps it was roped to a tree as someone pet, or it was old and couldn't keep up. Either way, we all tried to laugh it off and were just about to check the map to recorrect our route back, both to get some rest and to tell the story of how we all nearly died. To our other friends and leaders, when we heard the rapid scraping of paws on gravel and turned to see that the animal had decided to follow us and continue the hunt. I don't think I had ever run so fast in my entire existence before this point, but holy shit. I was so goddamn scared at how fast that dog ran at us. We all bolted as fast as we could for the turnoff and headed towards our camp, maintaining the ludicrous speed that was becoming all the more crucial. As the dog approached us, we reached the turnoff and found that it was a steep uphill slog, because of course it would be. Continuing up the hill at breakneck speed, we were all running for our lives and all contemplating the meaning of it simultaneously. Just as we reached the top of the incline, we heard a sharp whistle call from a long way back and noticed a figure standing in a sort of lumberjack-looking outfit at the bottom of the hill. The dog pulled a complete 180 immediately and left us to our thoughts after that. One of the adults at our campsite found the man later and spoke to him about what had happened. Apparently the dog was trained to retrieve hunted animals and... As such figured, we were a target, and so pursed us as a target. Probably one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me as a kid. This occurred on June 17, 2015. It was a sunny day at around mid-afternoon while we were boating along the eastern shore of Lake George, New York. We were just above the Narrows about 140 yards away from the shore. When the sighting occurred, the shoreline of this section of the lake is state property in the part of the forever wild section of the Adirondack. There are many square miles of wilderness here, and this location is only about eight miles from the locally famous Whitehall, New York sightings in 1976. We are motoring in our 19-foot outboard boat northeast in a narrow channel between some islands and the mainland. Our intended goal was a small single-site camp a short distance away. We're traveling about five miles per hour, slightly above idling speed. As we cleared the channel, there's a bay on our starboard side. Since I'm always scanning the water to the side looking for boat traffic, I was looking east into the bay and I noticed movement close to the shoreline. It seemed that whatever it was that we caught it by surprise. As we cleared a point of land, I got my wife's attention. She looked in that direction also saw it. My view was of a very large, glossy, black animate being that was squatted down by the water and seemed to quickly raise an arm from its side to a horizontal position. 
It rose up and then turned away and moved back to the side. It moved behind a nearby clump of coniferous trees. I couldn't believe how fast it moved. I then spun the boat around for a better view. Meanwhile, my wife was watching it. Her impression was that it was large, dark, and upright, and moved like an animal. Her view was slightly restricted by the trees that it was hiding behind, but she did notice that the being was swaying from side to side. The only known animal that is large and black out here in the Adindacks is a black bear. We both strongly know it wasn't a bear. We can't provide any accurate dimensions or descriptions of any physical details, but even though we're not sure of, what it was, we're sure of what it was not. We're used to seeing people on the shore, and this being was far larger than any human. We had cameras and binoculars aboard, but we're trying to process what we saw and never thought to grab either of them. It happened that fast. We then continued on to the island, which is about 200 yards from the sighting and only about 20 feet from the mainland. We chatted for a bit about what we just saw. Eventually, we got the charcoal grill fired up and proceeded to cook a meal. We do this on a regular basis on the islands. As we're eating, all of a sudden, I had a strong feeling to leave now. I shared that with my wife, and we quickly finished our meal, loaded the gear back on the boat, and left. I was not afraid, mind you, but I experienced a strong sense to leave. I knew we had to get out of there. I've never had that type of experience on the lake or anywhere else before, and I'm not sure the two events are related. I suspect that it wanted us to go away and go away now. Since then, I've had a heightened awareness of their presence in the woods and have found dozens of tree breaks and have recorded howls and wood knocks. On one occasion, while we were hiking in the fall, we noted a tree break at our destination and made a big deal about it. You can only imagine, to our surprise, as of a return down the same trail, that something had bent and splintered a four-inch living hardwood right over the trail. It was not that way on the way up. We did not feel afraid, but something was clearly communicating to us that it was the baddest thing around. My story is short and takes place many years ago when I was a kid in the early 1980s living in southeast Missouri. My parents and the neighbors were hanging out having a few Miller lights in the neighbor's yard and we kids were playing. It was shortly after dark when we decided to play tag. For those of us that have actually gone outside to play in the suburbs know that this is a perfect time to play this game. My neighborhood was like most, I guess, but my neighborhood was near a creek that ran for miles and passed by several thick stands of trees. So we'd been playing a while when I ran away from whomever it was that was it. It was at that moment when I saw something, a huge, almost glowing white shape, walking between two trees in the yard in front of me. It looked like a mixture of the Patterson, Gimlin, Bigfoot, and one of those costume villains from Scooby-Doe. It quickly passed behind a tree and was gone. It didn't reappear on the other side. I was so shocked and terrified that I couldn't take my eyes off where it had been. Then I ran straight into another tree, knocking myself silly. After the excitement of me hurting myself was over, I told my brother about it, and he, like everyone else I've told since, thought the same thing, 
that I had imagined it due to nearly knocking myself out. But I know what I saw, and that I saw it before I hit the tree, and to this day I can still see it in my mind as clearly as I did that late summer evening. I've gone on to call whatever I saw Bigfoot's ghost. I live in Ohio in a Cleveland suburb. This occurred in January 2023. At 1 a.m. I woke up and was very disoriented as well as sick to the stomach. It took me a good hour to fall back to sleep. Over the rest of the day, I had multiple unexplained bizarre sightings and apparitions. At 7 a.m. I wake up for a morning shower with the intention of going to work. It is still very dark, and I spot a creepy dark figure moving across my back porch. It was approximately three feet in size. I was so frightened by the figure that I locked myself in my basement. No windows or ways to peek in. Around 7.30 a.m., I hear unexplained noises, anywhere from a banging to a boom. Then a loud ringing in only one ear. Early that afternoon, I decided it was safe to leave and drove to a friend's house on the outskirts of the city. As I was driving, I saw a large diamond-shaped light come from a patch of woods. The light started to fade, and I could spot movement towards the car. It was a triangular craft with a dark graphite-like texture and color. The object moved away from the car and disappeared into the woods. I soon arrived at my friend's, and we talked about the strange appearances. By the time I left around 4 a.m. the next morning, my friend and I arrived at my home at 4.30 a.m. Well, that little pygmy figure appears again at 7 a.m. right on the dot. My TV goes crazy. The only thing that happens from then on is us getting in my car, driving two miles out of town, stopping, vomiting, and proceeding to the nearest church we can find. I speak to the pastor at the church at 8 a.m., and he tells me bad things are associated with my house. But this did not convince me. So here I am, writing to you, looking for some sort of explanation to these frightening appearances. I have seen the little being twice since. Is this only the beginning of these odd appearances? I pray I never see the dark, creepy thing on my back porch ever again. As the sun cast long shadows across the Arizona landscape, I found myself in a remote forest determined to make the most of my solo hunt for pheasants. The rustling leaves and chirping birds created a symphony of nature, and the anticipation of a successful hunt surged through me. The forest felt alive, vibrant, and full of potential. As I ventured deeper into the woods, the canopy grew denser, blocking out more and more of the sunlight. The air grew cooler, and the silence was almost overwhelming, save for the occasional snap of a twig beneath my boots. My heart pounded with a mix of excitement and trepidation. It was as if I had entered a different world, one untouched by time and human influence. I followed a narrow path that seemed to have been carved out by the passage of animals. The path twisted and turned, and at times I had to crouch beneath low-hanging branches. It was then that I noticed a peculiar movement ahead caught by the corner of my eye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As I advanced cautiously, the sounds of nature were replaced by a strange, hushed stillness. My steps grew slower as I caught sight of the creatures in the distance. My eyes widened in both awe and confusion. There they were, two creatures unlike anything I had ever seen before. The larger one, about seven to eight feet tall, was covered in light beige hair. It stood with its back to me, reaching for a branch about fifteen feet off the ground. Its movements were deliberate, almost human-like, and a sense of primal curiosity washed over me. The smaller creature, only about three feet tall, mirrored the larger one's appearance, covered in hair with the exception of its hands, feet, and around its eyes. This one had a darker shade of beige hair, and it was bent over, struggling to pick up a stick and put it in its mouth. The sight was utterly surreal, like stumbling upon a page from a storybook that had been lost to time. The hair on both creatures was thick, their appearance wild and untamed, as if they had emerged from the heart of the forest itself. I squinted, trying to make out the details of their faces, but their features remained largely obscured. The large creature's body was robust and powerful, its form shrouded in a cloak of mystery. My hunting instincts kicked in, and I shouldered my rifle with a practiced ease. I aimed carefully, focusing on the larger creature's back. The trigger was pulled, and the shot echoed through the woods. I watched as the bullet streaked toward its target, only to miss by a hair's breadth. To my astonishment, neither creature flinched at the sound of the gunshot. They seemed to be in a world of their own, completely unaffected by my presence. As the creatures continued their activities seemingly unfazed, my mind raced to make sense of the situation. What were these creatures? Were they a new species? or perhaps some forgotten legend brought to life. Doubt and wonder clouded my thoughts, leaving me hesitant to take another shot. Eventually the creatures melted back into the forest, disappearing as mysteriously as they had appeared. I stood there, my heart pounding in my chest, the echoes of my missed shot fading into the distance. The forest around me returned to its usual symphony, as if it had absorbed the creatures into its evergreen embrace. When I returned to my friends, they bombarded me with questions about my hunt. They were eager to hear about my experiences, the game I had encountered, and my shots fired. But I remained silent, lost in my thoughts. How could I explain what I had witnessed? How could I convey the profound sense of wonder and bewilderment that had washed over me in those quiet woods? Instead of sharing my story, I simply smiled, my mind a whirlwind of thoughts and emotions. Some mysteries are best left untouched, nestled within the heart of the forest, waiting for those rare moments when the boundaries between reality and the unknown blur, leaving us forever questioning what lies beyond. When I was a kid, like I was 11 or 12, something like that, 
I was playing in the huge parking lot that was behind my house in North Chicago, Illinois. I had a baseball bat, and I was pretending it was a sword. So I was in the parking lot, slashing around, pretending I was fighting bad guys. The parking lot was one huge parking lot, and then it had driveways going beside the building, out to the main road. So I was fighting in it, and I got up to the fence that was on the side of one of the driveways, and I did a fancy little slash, and then I pretended I sheathed it on my back, and then I stood up and I looked down the driveway. I saw myself standing on the sidewalk, staring back at me. Of course, I was freaked out because I didn't know what was going on. At first, I thought it was someone who looked just like me, and he probably thought the same thing. And then he kind of did a jog down the sidewalk past the building where I couldn't see him anymore. So I ran up and looked around the corner, and he was gone. I looked around the parking lot just in case he was looking for me, but I couldn't see him. So, creeped out, I decided to head home, and I told my father about this, and then he told me about doppelgangers. I was convinced I saw my own doppelganger. Two or three years later, I'm walking down the sidewalk toward home, and I look down the driveway, and I see myself playing in this parking lot, doing all the same slashes. I did like the fancy slash and sheathed it, and I was like, I, I remember this. I remember seeing myself in this position, so without even thinking about it, I dashed off to the front of the building and turned around and I waited for my younger self to come up the driveway. But my younger self never showed up. I looked down the driveway and I was not there. I walked home and I told my father about what I just saw and he laughed. I wonder if seeing a doppelganger is common. My father acted as if it was something that happens to everyone. I'm an adult now, and it's been over a dozen years since that last encounter. I'm just wondering what caused me to see it. There's a story I've been wanting to tell for a while now that happened to me some years ago. Thinking back, it gives me the chills. For the sake of anonymity for those involved, I've changed our names, but the dates are accurate. For clarity's sake, I'm not a believer in the paranormal or the supernatural or any myths and legends. I'm still not sold on what happened, but it's creepy enough when I consider all the facts. I do apologize for the length, but I want to get all this out in one fell swoop. You see, my cousins live back in northern Wisconsin, the rural part where houses are surrounded by miles of wood, and the roads are dirt and gravel. Not that they're out in the boonies or anything. The main town, though small, is only about five miles down the highway from where they live. My uncle, let's call him Kurt. He's the local sheriff of the area and so has lots of interesting stories to tell. My cousins, having grown up in these woods, are expert hunters and fishermen. They've hunted at all hours of the day in all kinds of weather and have tracked anything from deer and pheasants to bears. What I'm trying to say is they don't scare easy. Neither do their hunting dogs, two black Labradors called Magic and DJ. I've never been easy to scare either. No has my brother, but what we experienced was enough to give us all the heebie-jeebies. Even ten years later, remembering these events is enough to give me chills. 
There had been strange occurrences over the years, none of which my brother nor I were aware of until we visited them one summer, back in 2006. Now, my mom, my brother, and I usually visited them for at least a week or two every year up until Rob, who was three years older than my brother, left for college. We never experienced anything out of the ordinary until that year and haven't experienced anything since. What happened, though, has stayed with us all. My brother Mike and I weren't made aware of these happenings until we'd experienced enough to convince Uncle Kurt to share what he knew. Rob and Sam, who was one year older than me and a year younger than Mike, also chipped in with their own experiences. I'm chronicling our tales here in order as best as I can remember. 1998. Rob was about seven years old at this time. One night he snuck into the backyard to play on the old swing set they had set up. My cousin's backyard is surrounded by an eight-foot-high chain-link fence to keep bears and other predators out and to keep the kids in. After swinging for a few minutes, Rob said he remembered hearing the most horrible noise he's ever heard like something out of a horror movie. It was a distant roar, like some kind of huge beast, deep and brassy with an animalistic rumble, but at the same time screechy, like fingernails on a blackboard. Terrified, Rob fled back inside, screaming for his parents. They, apparently, had slept through the noise and had only awoken when they heard Rob scream. Approximately 2005. Kurt was finishing his patrol one night when he received a call from dispatch. Apparently, a local man had left his home early that morning to go fishing at one of the many lakes around town, promising his wife to be back around lunchtime. When he still hadn't returned by evening, his wife worriedly called the police. Once informed of which lake he'd gone to, Kurt and a couple squad cars headed to the narrow dirt trail that led off from the highway. It was a small turnoff, easy to miss if you didn't know it was there, surrounded on both sides by dense foliage and trees. It took maybe ten minutes to get from the highway to the lake, as you had to drive very slowly on the dirt path to avoid potholes, branches, and occasionally animals that may be in the road. After a few minutes on the trail, the officers came upon the man's car, spun out from the trail and smashed against a tree several feet into the woods. The entire passenger side was caved in, as if something had rammed into the car at high speed and shoved it into the tree. There was blood and tufts of hair all over the inside of the car and the driver's seat. Belt was ripped out of the buckle and the windshield was completely gone. It was as if the man had been wrenched through the windshield and dragged away, but the police couldn't find any trail even after bringing in canines. The only evidence pointing towards an animal attack rather than a murder was a set of claw marks gouged into the metal hood of the car. Experts determined it must have been a very angry bear, but no bears had been sighted, let alone reported, during that season. The man's body never turned up. August 9, 2006. Sam and Mike, on the second night we were visiting, decided to try camping out in the backyard. Despite the fence, our aunt insisted they take at least one of the dogs into the tent with them just to be safe. So they took Magic, the older lab. Magic had been very well trained and was usually very quiet, but sometime in the middle of the night she became incredibly agitated. She began barking quietly at first, but soon much louder. This is when Sam and Mike woke up. 
They told me that magic would bark for several seconds, then fall quiet, not even growling, then start barking again. After repeating this several times, the two of them started hearing rustling from somewhere beyond the fence. They were camped somewhat near the house, so whatever was capable of making that much noise had to be huge. They stayed quiet, Sam warning Mike that if it was indeed a bear, any sudden movement might cause it to charge, and that fence wouldn't keep it out for long. However, despite Magic's ferocious barking, the rustling kept getting louder. Just as Sam was about to take the flashlight to try and see anything, our Aunt Kelly opened the side door and bellowed at Magic to shut up. Kelly, despite being a relatively frail woman, was incredibly loud and forceful, to the point that even Magic was somewhat scared of her. Apparently, whatever was in the woods was too, because the rustling soon faded and Magic fell quiet. Neither Sam nor Mike were able to fall asleep again because a couple hours later the rustling started again. Magic didn't make any more noise, but she stayed on high alert, standing stiff with her tail between her legs, staring at the front of the tent. Sam said the rustling would die down occasionally, then start up from a different direction, as if whatever was out there was circling the house and trying to bait someone to come out. Around four in the morning, completely exhausted, Sam and Mike finally drifted off. When Kurt came outside around seven to wake them, he sounded strange, as Sam put it. When the two of them climbed out of the tent, they saw why. A section of the fence had been bent at the top, peeled outward as if something had grabbed it and tried to pull it down. Not even a bear would have been tall or brave enough to do this. Needless to say, they packed up the tent and slept inside for the rest of the visit. August 10, 2006 after the initial scare of the previous night had passed and Kurt spent the day patrolling the woods around the house for several hundred yards in all directions with both Magic and D.G., he determined whatever had visited the night before was gone. That evening, Mike and I were invited to paintball with Kurt, Sam, and Rob for a few hours. Being hunters, the three of them were very good at this, and Mike and I both had minimal experience. I declined, preferring to stay on the balcony and do some target practice with my other cousin, Claire, who is two years younger than me. The four of them disappeared into the woods, and soon all we heard was the popping of the paintball guns and the occasional shout of joy or pain whenever one of them pegged another. Now I heard and saw nothing, but when Kelly cut the game short a couple hours later when she called for Kirk to help her clean up after DJ threw up all over the carpet, Mike went directly up to me and told me something that chilled me to the bone. At one point in the game, he'd been trying to circle behind Rob to peg him a good one when he saw movement out of the corner of his eye. Thinking it had been Sam or Kurt, Mike had crouched in a bush as the thing approached. As it got closer, he decided it was Kurt since the shape appeared to be very tall. Kurt is six foot four and took aim. However, as it continued to approach him, Mike noticed it appeared to be wearing something shaggy akin to a ghillie suit, and it took him a second to realize that none of them were wearing anything that resembled that. For those of you who don't know, ghillie suits are those shaggy camouflage uniform soldiers wear to disguise themselves among bushes. Unnerved, Mike was debating on whether to shoot at it or not when he heard Kelly calling. 
As Sam, Rob, and Kurt began making their noisy way back towards the house, the shake disappeared back into the darkness. He didn't bring this up with the others until we sat down and talked about all of this, and it seriously freaked out Rob, Sam, and Kurt, since they hadn't seen or heard anything that night. August 11, 2006, Kirk decided to take us fishing at, you guessed it, the same lake. He was not superstitious in the least, and neither were any of us. So despite the creepy encounters over the past couple of days, we were willing to chalk it up to wild animals and Mike and me not being used to the woods. So the six of us hitched up the boat trailer, piled into Kurt's truck, and headed out. The lake was maybe a 20-minute drive from the highway, not including the time it took to meander from the house to the highway and the highway to the lake. When we finally made it to the turnoff, Kurt drove very slowly as the rain from the past few weeks had made the path very treacherous and full of hidden bumps and ditches. Even going as slow as ten miles per hour, the car bumped and jostled us enough to make our butts sore. Rob and Sam, ever the trackers, were leaning out of the side windows to try and spot any tracks. In case they wanted to come back sometime later for hunting, they noted, but didn't mention until later, that all the tracks they saw seemed to be heading away from the lake. When we finally arrived, we split up. Rob, Sam, and Mike climbed into the smaller rowboat and headed off towards the other end of the lake. The lake itself was shaped like an uneven U, the main part being quite large, with the smaller part disappearing around a bend and ending at a natural beaver dam. All in all, it takes maybe half an hour to row from one end to the other. While the boys were off doing their own thing, Kurt, Claire, and me jumped into the slightly larger motorboat and hung around the main section of the lake. Fishing was relatively good, as between the three of us over the course of several house, we managed to catch seven or eight decent-sized fish. Nothing strange had happened up until the sun was just starting to set and we were casting our last few lines. At this time, I caught something truly massive on my line and attempted to reel it in with all I had. Being twelve at the time, I had very little arm strength, but I was determined to at least see what I'd caught. Kurt stepped in to help haul it up, thinking I'd either hooked a log or even a muskie, which is like a freshwater barracuda, quite strong and with nasty needle teeth. Google it if you want which were known to be in the lakes around the area. As a precaution in case this happened, all of our rods were strung with dragon line, made especially for fishing in musky territory, as it was strong enough that they wouldn't snap the line while struggling on the hook. With Kurt's help, I managed to haul whatever was hooked almost to the surface. The lake water was relatively murky, so visibility faded after the first foot or so, but even then the three of us saw something very, very big rising to the surface. At this point, Kurt was convinced it was a muskie as the line was jerking back and forth, and a log certainly wouldn't be able to do that. When the shape was maybe four feet from the surface, the line suddenly pulled so sharply I nearly lost my grip on my pole. The top foot of the pole dipped into the water almost straight down as the thing dove, and then, before the rod had a chance to break or be ripped from my hands, the line snapped. That's right, it snapped. The ricochet was almost enough to send me over the other side of the boat, but luckily Claire was there to catch me. Unnerved but not wanting to end the day just yet, 
Kirk trimmed the line and gave me a new setup. The next thing that happened was soon after, when Kurt hooked a particularly large bass on a five-hook lure. While attempting to remove the hooks, the fish was flopping so much that one of the stray hanging hooks caught Kurt's thumb and gave it a pretty nasty slice. Luckily, he packed first aid supplies in the tackle box for accidents just like this. But when he dripped antiseptic on the cut, he held his hand over the side of the boat, letting the blood dribble into the water. After a few minutes, Claire pointed out a trail of bubbles and ripples on the surface of the water some yards out. It circled our boat slowly a couple times, but soon disappeared. As the sun was now setting enough that Kurt decided to call it a day, he motored us back to the shore and we hitched up the boat to the trailer. While Kurt packed the fishing rods and strung the fish on a line to keep them from flopping out of the truck bed, Claire and I went back down to the shallows to look for frogs as we waited for the boys to return from the other side of the lake. Suddenly we heard frantic shouting from the other side of the lake. Claire and I looked up to see the boys' boat quite literally skimming the water as they blew around the bend and gunning it straight for the shore. I remember thinking since when did they have a motor on that boat because Rob was rowing so fast. Sam was shouting at us to get away from the water so they could land the boat and moderately freaked out at their desperation. Claire and I promptly complied. In doing so, however, I tripped over an old campfire and ended up with a giant log pinning my foot down. Claire wasn't strong enough to lift the log, and by this time the boy's boat had reached the shore in record time. Now, my brother wasn't exactly the strong type either, being only 14, but as soon as the boat hit the sand, he leapt out and dragged it up the embankment single, handed, with Rob and Sam still sitting in it. Once the boat was entirely out of the water, Sam jumped out and managed to lift the log clear off my foot while Rob helped Mike and Kurt hitch up their boat. I've honestly never seen any of them more frantic and unnerved, and it scared me. Even Kurt, who didn't fully understand their panic, got the message enough to book it out from the lake. Normally calm and collected, he took the trail much too fast, and at several points we were afraid he'd break the hitch and we'd lose the boats. At this time, the sun had fully set behind the tree line, and it was unsettlingly dark inside the dense foliage. Rob kept turning to look behind us to make sure the boats were still hooked up. But it wasn't until later that I realized he was also keeping an eye out for anything else. The rest of us were looking forward, trying to spot the highway, so Rob was the only one to attest to this. But he swears up and down that right as the trail opened onto the highway shoulder, and we exited the woods, he saw a huge and hairy arm swing out towards the boat as if trying to grab the fish we'd left in the bottom with the tackle gear. He said it was thick and heavy like a bear's arm, but the elbow was all wrong and it was much too long and high off the ground. He didn't mention this to any of us until several days later, when Mike and I were packing up to head back home. When questioned later as we prepared the fish for dinner, Sam explained that they'd been exploring the lake for a while. At the very end of the inlet was a huge beaver dam that had been there for quite some time, and they wanted to show Mike what it looked like. When they arrived, however, the dam was demolished. It looked like something very large and very strong had decided to use the logs as scratching posts. Weirded out, they decided to not get any closer and headed back towards the bend before dropping anchor. 
As the sun began to set and they were finishing up with their last few catches, Mike had hooked a bass right in the eye. It bled all the way up to the surface and all over the boat as they took the hook out. They washed the blood out as best they could and prepared to pack up when they noticed the same bubble and ripple trail Claire and I had seen, heading straight for them. Now seriously freaked, Rob had grabbed the oar without another word and booked it back to shore. Between that day and the day we left, the three of them had slowly told Mike and me the previous incidents and encounters, but at this point I had been sure they were just trying to freak us out as a going, away present. Kirk finished off our trip by telling us of a local urban legend, one he was convinced we'd encountered for real. Keep in mind what I'm writing here is from memory and what Kurt told us, so if there are any inaccuracies with geography or historical evidence, that's on him. In his words, the story begins over 200 years ago. A wagon train full of settlers headed west got lost and turned around in winter snowstorms. Instead of following their path, the settlers ended up going north. They came upon a small lake in the middle of northern Wisconsin and decided to make camp there hoping to ride out the rest of the winter storms rather than risking continuing and getting more lost. They didn't make it, and their story was forgotten for a century before prospective hunters and fishermen came upon the lake hoping for a good place to stake out for the season. After exploring and doing some digging into what appeared to be an old abandoned campsite, they found the remains. The majority of what they found were animal bones, oxen and horses and other livestock that the settlers would have had with them. However, out of the 150 people estimated to have been part of the wagon train, only about 20-something remains were found. Theories abounded of what could have happened. Some speculated the settlers suffered a similar fate to the Donner Party, forced into cannibalism to survive the brutal winter before moving on once the snow abated. Others wanted to blame a hostile Native American tribe for slaughtering the settlers and taking the bodies back to their lands, but no evidence of this was found either. The local tribe, the Ojibwe, keep in mind. These are Kurt's words, so I have no idea how accurate this may be, offered another scenario. They told of a terrible creature, half man and half bear, that stood over ten feet tall and could swim underwater for hours at a time. It can scent blood from miles away and is incredibly territorial. The tribe had stories about how they sent their strongest and bravest warriors to kill the creature, but none of them ever returned. Most of the older tribesmen refused to speak of it or even name it. The creature's territory is apparently centered around the lake and radiates for several miles in all directions. The disappearance of the wagon train in the 1800s was the first instance of a large-scale attack. The slaughter of the Ojibwe warriors was the second. Essentially, it's a local native version of Bigfoot, except moderately more terrifying. The natives had a name for it, and I'm probably butchering the spelling, but I've tried spelling it out phonically since I've never seen it written anywhere. And unfortunately, this seems to be a small enough legend that Google is no help. They call it the Ashwano B. Mukwa. Mike and I laughed it off, and all of us parted in good spirits, still not convinced of anything but a little wary, if only subconsciously. August 16, 2006. Kurt and Rob were hunting in the woods shortly after we'd left and happened upon something truly terrifying. 
They emailed us the next day with the story and this time pictures. Now, the email began, bears usually mark their territory by clawing trees at the edges of their territory, leaving distinctive markings. However, these markings are rarely seen higher than six or seven feet from the ground. The mark Kurt found, ten feet off the ground. Remember, he's six foot four. This was the only marking they found in the area, but decided against searching for too long. Clearly, whatever had made a marking that high off the ground was incredibly big and tall, and neither of them were willing to risk running into it. They'd only been in the area for about an hour or so, having driven in and parked the car on a dirt road before heading off to hunt. When they returned to the car, they saw something that scared them so much that to this day, they have not returned to that hunting spot. Over the tracks of their tire were two humongous footprints. One of the photos shows Kurt's foot next to the print for a size comparison, and it's important to note he wears a size 12. Even more disturbing was that to achieve that stride. The thing had to be at least nine feet tall and walking on two legs, something a bear is not capable of. The depth of the holes that Claws left behind was enough to scare the daylights out of them. I'm still a skeptic about urban legends and otherworldly, supernatural occurrences, but I know my cousins well enough to know that they would never fake something like this. So either someone is playing a very elaborate hoax on them, or there is indeed something out there. I'm not saying one or the other. June 2007. A couple just aside of Lac du Flambeau, outside the supposed creature's usual roaming area, reported a vandalism to the local authorities. What baffled the couple and confused the police was their story. Over the course of several days, the couple had attempted to set up elaborate bird feeders, hoping to attract birds to photograph. They set up the birdhouse, left for the day for work, and returned in the evening to find the birdhouse demolished. Thinking they hadn't set it up correctly, they bought a new one and set it out the next morning. Rinse and repeat for over a week. Finally fed up with whatever could be doing it, they suspected vandalism and decided to stay home one day, hoping to catch the culprit in the act. They set up one last bird feeder and spent the day lounging around the house, but nothing happened. Finally, as dusk settled and they prepared dinner, the husband heard a noise coming from the backyard. Grabbing flashlights, the two of them ran outside to confront whoever was destroying the birdhouse. What they described was what confused the police. Both the husband and wife claimed to have seen what resembled a bear standing on two legs ripping the birdhouse apart with its front paws. When they turned on their flashlights and directed the beams at the creature, it turned and lumbered away, still on two legs before disappearing into the woods. Things to keep in mind. Bear paws don't have the dexterity to pick up and rip apart a birdhouse, and they certainly can't actually run away on two. At most, they can only take a few steps before dropping back to all fours, as their legs are too stumpy to allow them to reach a substantial speed. And it didn't gallop in the way bears usually move. The couple described its movements as a lumbering walk, more akin to when a monkey walks on two legs. Police investigated the area with canines, but were unable to turn up anything. The couple didn't report any further vandalism. July 2007. We were visiting the cousins again. Nothing much happened over the two weeks we were there except for one instance. 
Sam and Mike were walking down to a lake, more like an overly large pond, near the house one afternoon when they heard what sounded like a bear moving through the foliage to their side. The two of them were on the dirt road, so they turned to see if they could make out whatever it was making the noise. They both claimed to have seen something tall, large, and incredibly shaggy in the distance, lumbering off into the shadows. Needless to say, they turned around and came straight back to the house. Nothing else happened that year. July 2008, the whole family sans Kurt was visiting us in California for two weeks. Kurt stayed home because he couldn't get any off time from his job. He'd been home alone before, with just Magic and DJ for company, and being both a police officer and a seasoned hunter, he was not scared of being alone. However, one day he calls us to talk about an incident that had occurred the night before. When he spoke, his voice actually shook a bit. I don't think he'd cried or anything, but he was certainly shaken. Apparently around 11 at night, right as Kurt was about to go to bed, DJ and Magic started barking like crazy, staring out the side window towards the backyard with their tails up and hair raised. Normally they only get like that when they scent bears or other predators while hunting and are otherwise very calm and quiet. When Kurt approached the sliding doors to try and see what could have been making them so agitated, they fell quiet except for whining very quietly, their tails tucking tightly between their legs. Kurt told us he heard what sounded to be something incredibly large moving around right outside the fence, but the house had no exterior lights that pointed in that direction, so he couldn't see anything. The dogs refused to budge from their position, so he moved to close the curtains just in case something moved into their sight and set them off again. Right as he did so, he said he heard a noise he could only describe as horrific. A deep, brassy growl with a screech overlaying it, just like Rob had heard so many years ago that night he'd snuck out. This time, however, it sounded as if the creature was just outside the fence, hidden by the shadows. Kurt proceeded to lock every single window and door, switch on every light in the house, and then take both dogs into the master bathroom the only room in the house with no windows, and locked the door, staying there until morning. Luckily, nothing else happened that summer. It's been many years since then, and unfortunately, I have not kept in close contact with my cousins. Rob moved out sometime around 2011 when he enrolled in college and hasn't been home since. Sam joined the Marines in 2012 and hasn't been home either. Claire hasn't been in contact with me, and Aunt Kelly had a sort of falling out with my mom, so they haven't been speaking either. I don't know if anything else has happened over these past few years, and this little local legend seems to be low-key enough that Googling anything about it doesn't yield many results. So again, I'm not a believer in aliens or Bigfoot or ghosts or anything else, really. I don't want to say I'm a skeptic. I like to keep an open mind, but I haven't seen much to give me definitive proof either. These encounters have been the closest I've come to anything of the sort, and I'm still not quite sure what to think. I'm just glad to have written this all down somewhere. About two years ago, my younger brother passed away, and I've had weird things happen since. Like I've had a magpie follow me home and stand about a foot away from me. 
But the one thing that really stood out is, I was on my way home after going out to get new art supplies. And I was sat on a bus that I usually don't get on, and there was a little girl, and her mother sat on the row behind me. Everything was normal until we stopped at a red light, and the little girl started saying, Mommy, Mommy, there's a ghost. And she was saying the ghost was really kind, but out of nowhere she started describing the ghost, and the description was identical to my brother. It doesn't seem that weird, but that day when I got home, the picture of me and my two brothers, that's usually on my desk, was face up on the floor. There was no one home, and my window was closed. So I'm not sure if this is just a coincidence or paranormal, but it's freaking me out a little bit.